Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiecka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiecka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiecka. Hello, my visionary friends. Thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing the latest knowledge to support your evolutionary process. You're a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions, and we'll address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy. This hour, we'll examine fairies, earth spirits, hidden folk. Are they fact or fiction? Myths and legends of earth spirits, fairies, little people, and hidden folk have been around longer than we know. In modern times, we've come to view them as fairy tales, imaginative stories created to entertain children. Yet in times past, indigenous peoples across the globe viewed them as not only real, but very influential. The concept of earth spirits is so widespread, existing in so many cultures, it may warrant a deeper look into what they really are and what support they might provide during our tumultuous times. If they are real, how can we engage them? And can we do so without appropriating practices and ceremonies from our indigenous brothers and sisters? With us this hour to discuss hidden folk, their mysterious powers, and how they can aid evolution is Evelyn C. Reisdyke. Evelyn is a shamanic practitioner and best-selling author whose titles include The Norris Shaman and Spirit Walking, A Course in Shamanic Power and Shamanic Creativity. Her website, spiritpassages.com. Evelyn, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution. Oh, it's great to be with you again. It's lovely to have you on the show once again. So your, your bio says you're a shamanic practitioner. Where did you receive your training? I started receiving my training probably in the late 80s and uh, initially with Michael Horner, learning how to journey from his book, actually, initially, and then studying with he and Sandra Ingerman for three years, with Sandra Ingerman for another about eight years, working with indigenous shamans from Siberia, from Tuva, and uh, I have a long relationship with uh, Jankri from Nepal. And what I, what I realized through all of that is my primary focus is developing relationship with the spirits. Because it's through our relationship with the spirits that we are able to do whatever it is we need to do as shamanic practitioners. And... Our relationship with the spirits puts us much, much closer to our relationship with nature as well. So, what? Let's back up a little bit. What is a shamanic practitioner? Uh, all through time, there have been people who can, are called shaman in indigenous communities, and they are ones that expand awareness. I don't like to say altered consciousness. I like to say expanded awareness. We have our ordinary senses that are wired to our nervous system, but every single one of us can perceive beyond them. 
We may call it intuition. We may call it foresight. We may call it uh, being a seer. Whatever it might be, we have those capacities. And the shaman or shamanic practitioner hones them through relationship with the spirits that infuse everything. Shamanism has its roots in animism, understanding that everything is alive, is sentient, and available to us for relationship, much in the way our deep, deep ancestors understood the world. So you're speaking of spirits. Would you help us understand what exactly, I mean, it's a word that's tossed around a lot. What are the spirits? I think of um, spirit in general as the animating force that is um, non-local in nature. You may have your body in, in one place in space-time, but our spirit, uh, our animating force exists beyond that limitation. It infuses our body while we are alive and then sheds it and keeps on moving after the body is no longer necessary. And that aspect of us is, is uh, what do I want to say, hardwired into the larger consciousness, the larger sense of spirit where everything is interconnected. Our senses are limitations, even though they are glorious and I wouldn't want to give up any of them, particularly as I age. They are limiting in that they define our sense of reality in a very, very um, narrow way. For instance, our eyesight is, a, again, a glorious gift, but we can only see the visible spectrum. Raptors can see in infrared, bumblebees can see in uh, ultraviolet. We can only perceive those things through our technology. We can't actually see them with our eyes. The same thing is true about sound. There's a range of electromagnetic vibration that exists far beyond the narrow band that we call audible sound. Our dogs can hear above it, and so do bats. Whales and elephants can hear below it. So it's a matter of um, expanding our our awareness to include that which is not um, ordinarily perceived through our nervous system, but is something that we are in contact with all the time. So it's a way of uh, connecting us on a far deeper way. So spirit is a way of connecting us on a far deeper way. Uh, what, I, I'm still I'm still a little lost as to what exactly is spirit. Spirit is the animating force in every everything. So you can imagine that it is an energy that we cannot perceive yet with our instruments, but it's measurable because they've been able to measure the weight difference when somebody passes away. There's this tiny incremental change in weight that is not water vapor leaving them through breath. It's something that we cannot measure with our equipment that is no longer present. So that energy, whatever we want to call it, I happen to call it spirit, somebody else may call it something else, that animates everything. Everything has some kind of non-physical presence that we can tune into by expanding our awareness. So it's the, I, I don't differentiate between spirit and soul, it's an animating force. You have it, I have it, animals have it, trees have it, plants have it, it is that which makes them alive. So is there any requirements to be considered a shamanic practitioner? My biggest uh, recommendation to the people that I work with uh, as students and the people who read my books is about learning how to expand your awareness safely and then 
stepping into relationship with the spirits right around where you live, the plants and trees where you live, the animals and birds where you live, stepping into relationship with them in the same way that an indigenous, excuse me, indigenous shaman would have done centuries ago. And at one point, all human beings were, quote unquote, indigenous. We've just had it enculturated out of us as European Americans. So that way of being, if you go to a village in Nepal, say, the the Jankris, which are one of the words they use for shaman there, know every plant, every stone, every mountain intimately. They know them as friends, allies, sources of power. Well, this sounds really delicious, but <laughs> how does one uh, step into and relate to something that we can't see? Through the journey process. Now, journeying is a way that I think of it as a um, as a bridge for us. We are hardwired by our nervous system. So the journey is usually, um, what do I want to say? Um, I've, I love late late year uh, aphasia it is a translation device let's put it that way so it's based on the journey process framework is based on a hunter-gatherer lifestyle you start where you are listening to a repetitive stimulus of some kind or ingesting an entheogen you travel your soul travels your consciousness travels uh, as uh, somebody leaving the central fire as a hunter-gatherer, traveling through the landscape to get everything that is required for survival, the shaman's consciousness, their spirit, travels into the spirit world to receive that which would uh, not normally be able to be perceived. And to what, bring... What is this? What's the spirit world? Back up a little. What's the spirit world? The spirit world is the plane on which all of that animating force exists. We need to have some bridge for us because our minds are wired primarily by our sensory experience. We need to have some kind of bridge to perceive that which lies beyond our senses. And for some people, they use an entheogen or a uh, psychotropic uh, They ingest something that can help to do that. You can also use repetitive stimulus because it will help your brain shift into the brainwave state to be able to perceive more than what lies within the constraints of your nervous system. What brainwave state is that? So journeying can uh, change the brainwaves to high alpha, uh, strong theta, a little bit of delta, and a little bit of gamma. It's the repetitive stimulus, and, and a stimulus of four beats a second works particularly well to entrain the brain to those rhythms, where the brain is able to perceive, have that visionary experience, but to do so in a way that's safe. So it's not a matter of getting lost or being so spaced out or having to worry about a chemical getting out of your body. You're able to have that experience that your brain is wired to do. Joseph Chilton Pierce is a wonderful author, and he... Um, he uses this expression, human beings are wired for transcendence. And it's my belief that we need to step into those kinds of states in support of our next step of evolution. If we allow ourselves to continually be limited by our sensory experience, where you and I appear to be separated by distance, uh, distance in both time and space. You're, uh, I'm on the East Coast, you're in mountain time, we're separated by distance. We follow a different uh, time zone. 
But in truth, we are intimately interwoven as is every life form on the planet. We are like cells in the body of Mother Earth. We evolved specifically for this planet. And the planet itself even has a consciousness and spirit. So we are part of her body. And in order to be able to step into the larger sense of who we are, we need to be able to understand that, not just intellectually, but in our heart, in our body, in in the core of who we are, that we are part of something extraordinary, and that by turning on all of who we are, all of our potential, we then are able to make the contributions that are necessary to renew the planet restore harmony and balance which is one of the primary jobs of a shaman is continually repairing and restoring harmony and balance in the environment not simply for the humans but to create some sense of harmony and balance within the human world and within the the world of nature between human beings between groups of human beings always considering all participants not just the people who come and go i need help so uh, we're just about out of time in this segment, but um, when you spoke of the brainwaves that the uh, repetitive drumming or whatever allows us to go into the states, uh, those are also dreamlike states, are they not? They are. They And so my question being, how do we know it's not just made up? How do we know it's real? How do we know that dreams aren't real? We're, in our culture, in Western culture, we slice the baloney ever thinner. We uh, separate all these potential experiences that we're capable of having, and we define them to make them small and digestible. Human beings have capacity far beyond any of those definitions. And you can receive powerful information in dreams, in visions, daydreams journeys. Well, we're going to have to go into daydreams, journeys, and powerful information on the other side of a commercial break. Evelyn and I will return shortly, so don't go away. This is Mission Evolution, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. Again, this is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. We're dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. To our faithful and thoughtful audience, we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you. What do you think about the role of shamanism in modern times? Email me at info at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the next show. This in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled, When Sound Becomes Visible. T.L. states, I had no idea sound could become light and its possible application in medicine. Thank you for this eye-opening interview. I enjoyed it very much. 
Thanks, T.L. John Stuart Reed has done some amazing experiments with sound. It'll be very interesting to see how what he has found plays out in the future. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org, listen to the episode entitled When Sound Becomes Visible, and let us know what you think. With us this hour discussing the evolutionary properties of shamanism is Evelyn C. Reisdyke. Her website, spiritpassages.com. Evelyn, we were talking about journeying, um, you know, the act of journeying, and uh, altered brain waves and accessing spirit, um, and what all those things are. And would you go a little deeper? Okay, so I'm sure pretty by at this point the audience is going, okay, so <laughs> how do I go on this journey? <laughs> Where's the train, right? So, um, could you go into a little bit more the process of journeying and how we can tell that we're actually getting someplace and what we're experiencing is valid? <laughs> An excellent, excellent question. So fortunately, there are drumming uh, recordings just about everywhere available. In fact, I think they're even on uh, YouTube where you can listen to that four beats a second drumming that can support the journey process. I recommend that people uh, avoid using any other kind of substances when they're learning to journey, including alcohol, and that they have a clear intent. And the best clear intent to begin a journey is to have the experience of inviting uh, a friendly animal or bird to participate with you in a journey. There are also excellent, excellent books out there that you can work with, and you can find terrific teachers at shamanicteachers.com to learn in person. So um, I if, if I'm understanding this right, the information that you get from the shamanic sources is all based on your ability to um, journey and accurately um, interpret what you're getting on, on the journey. Is the information literal or metaphorical? Uh, I would say both. Uh, you can get really, really clear information where it's, it's uh, practical kind of advice. And I believe... The whole idea of journeying actually is rooted in practical solutions. Our ancestors, our deep ancestors, when they were hunters and gatherers, needed to solve the problems of survival. And sometimes those were ones that you didn't have the ability to do with ordinary experience. So if you're looking to intercept um, migrating game, for instance, a particular time of year, your diet is going to depend on intersecting those migrating herds. Well, uh, we, uh, my partner and I tried to see the caribou migration in uh, Canada one year, and they were so sure that the caribou were coming to a certain place, and they were have helicopters and all these good things. They had set up a camp, and lo and behold, the caribou uh, missed it by miles. So if you're on foot traveling in a group of about 30 people with children and elders, you need to know what direction to travel in. You don't have helicopters. You don't have trees tall enough to see miles and miles away. How do you intersect that herd? That would be the job of the shaman to go into a journey state, journey state and to find out what direction should we travel. And that kind of information would have been critical also in our migration around the planet. We know what plants are reducing fever here, but now we're in this new place. What plants around us can reduce fever? What 
things here are edible. We had to be able to interact with those spirits to solve those problems, to find sources of fresh water, whatever it might be. And so I feel like it's grounded in practicality. And I had a a wonderful experience actually early on in in my journeying history in that I had tried for a good 20 years to replicate a drawing salve, uh, the salve that you would use if you have an infection. And um, my great-great-grandmother made it. I uh, used it when I was a child. We would scrape it out of the bottom of a uh, uh, mason jar. And if you had an infected cut, you put the bandage on at night in the morning. The wound would be completely clear and you'd be able to carry on. It would heal and be beautiful. But she did not leave recipes for it, and she did not teach her children how to make salve because of the time she lived. Nobody wanted to learn those old-fashioned things. So I assumed I would be able to very easily, somebody else's great-great-grandmother must have done it. I did all kinds of research. This is pre-internet days. Bought books, made all kinds of greasy stuff, and never made her salve. So in learning to journey, I, I was journeying effectively for myself, but I was taking a, a class on how to uh, support other people who learn to journey, to teach them. And I said, mm, if this is really real, it works for me, but I might teach it to somebody else. And I wasn't sure I would do that then. I want to prove it's really real. I want to know how to make grandma's staff. So over the course of a week, I in journeys, I got to meet my great-great-grandmother who died before I was born. Explained to her I was sorry about that three-generation gap between us, but I wanted to learn how to make her salve. She showed me in the journeys how to gather the ingredients and in the old ways that a cook would show you a fistful of this and an armload of that. And uh, wrote down everything that I got in the journey. It took me quite a while to gather the ingredients because the base of it was um, goose fat. So I had to find an organic goose on Long Island in New York uh, in the middle of summer, which was pretty hard because you can usually find them around the holiday time. So so was it a wild goose chase? It was a wild goose chase for a while, absolutely. But I finally got everything I needed. I made the salve, and now I have to find out if it actually works. So I always have cats, I, and I always roughhouse with them, so I'm always getting scratched. So I aggravated a cat scratch until I got really infected. And I said, this is either going to work or I'll have to go to the doctor put the salve on as we did when I was a child. Lo and behold, in the morning, the wound was completely clear and beginning to heal. Fantastic. So that's an example of being able to access incredibly tangible answers to questions in a way that there's no other way I could have gotten that information. There's no other way I tried, you know, all different ways to do that. And it was impossible until I was able to do that through the journey process. Amazing. You know, um, changing gears just a little bit, um, there's, there's has been for quite some time, but it's stirring up again. Um, this issue of appropriation of ceremony, uh, appropriation of traditions, and I guess there's even lawsuits now between the uh, Native Americans of America and the original natives from um, Canada to uh, against people that are using or they feel are appropriating their ceremonies and using them to make money. Um, what can you tell us about that? How can we use this form? and not be accused of appropriation. 
This form is as old as humankind. It is not limited to any particular tribal group or even any continent because it's something that is a natural human ability and our ancestors did it in all different forms all over the planet for millennia. I have a strong objection, as I'm sure you do, to appropriating other people's ceremonies, things like the sweat lodge, the inipi, all of these things that are that are culturally specific um, ceremonies that are meant to remain culturally specific. The ability to expand our awareness is universal for human beings. And so, how, how can we tell if something's meant to be culturally specific? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you might find in more than one culture, and other things that are like, like you say, the Anipi is very, very specific. However, a lot of different tribes now practice the Anipi, even though I believe it was a Lakota to begin with. How can you tell when something's uh, culturally specific in order to avoid uh, appropriation? Well, I I would probably find out first of all who's teaching it. If it is an uh, uh, native specific and indigenous groups ri- uh, ritual or ceremony, I would go to that group and ask, is this something I can learn? I I stand outside of your group. Is this something I can learn? And to be that respectful, again, it's so much about relationship, even between human beings. When we step into relationship and treat each other as um, sovereign human beings who have the same rights to respect and caring that we want for ourselves, then we are less likely to be um, trotting around like like toddlers, you know, that sort of crash into things. <laughs> I love two-year-olds where they're just they they what run on tiptoes and crash through the crash through the house and that that behavior does not have to be if we treated everybody with the caring that we ourselves desire if we treated other people with the respect that we desire for ourselves we would have a very different situation. And I, I also believe that's something that we really have to do as part of our evolution. We have a planetary-wide crisis in terms of climate that we have to address as a unified species. And we cannot unify in the, the current state that we are in until we step into that larger experience of ourselves. When we can see other people as our brothers and sisters. So by unifying, um, doesn't that take us back to what you described spirit as, where all things meet? Is that the kind of unity you're talking about as being able to expand your awareness into that place? Yes, yes. And I think it's in some ways it's easier when you have the experience of recognizing that the tree that you would normally go out and just prune is actually a living, sentient being. Different kinds of sentience than we have, absolutely. But it it has a space in this world. I can go and speak to that tree in a journey and say, this branch is overhanging in such a way that I'm concerned that it will tear your bark when it falls. 
I want to trim this tr this branch. What is it that you need from me in reciprocity? And that is a completely different way than we're used to working in the world. When you step into that kind of relationship, you are you are changing your perspective also internally because you are recognizing that you are connected irrevocably to everything around you. And when you begin to have that perspective, you know that injuring something that appears to be outside of you is an injury to yourself. I was going to mention that that when you were talking about that, um, coming into that recognition, and we're just about out of time in this segment, but coming into that recognition of everything as a sentient being, isn't that an extremely painful process? Because then you have to back up and look at all the places where we have not acknowledged that and all the suffering that's going on around us as a result. Absolutely. And then you look for the way that you can contribute to making it better. It's a painful process, and I don't know that everybody's willing to, to put on their, their big boy, big girl panties and, and go through that. But it's a, it's a beautiful thought and probably, like you say, an absolute key to our evolving into more sentient human beings. Um, we'll pick up with all of that fun stuff on the other side of a commercial break, but it is time for a quick pause. Evelyn and I will return to our discussion shortly. You stay right there. This is Mission Evolution. We're coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. Stay right there. More shamanism to come. This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire Leading Edge information-packed past episode collection is available for listen or download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the other things I offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. Our guest this hour is Evelyn C. Reisdyke. We're speaking about the existence of hidden folk in our modern world. Her website, spiritpassages.com. And speaking of which, Evelyn, let's move on to hidden folk. What are hidden folk? <laughs> so there, there is an entire category of nature spirits that are actually, I think of them as kind of standing in the doorway between the human world and the world of nature. They assist in us being able to communicate well with with the spirits of nature and they are ones that function like guardians and protectors uh, I, I first learned about them actually from my Norwegian grandmother my Norwegian grandmother uh, would put out uh, she she had uh, squirrels that she fed and all this all the critters in the yard that she'd feed but she'd put out a little bowl of milk or porridge and tell me it was for the squirrel and as a as a small child I knew that is not true um, but she wouldn't elaborate on it and it wasn't until later I realized my uh, grandmother had grown up on a farm in southern Norway 
my her husband, my grandfather, actually was from northern Norway. And they routinely fed spirits they called the Nyssa. The Nyssa were responsible for helping to have the milk from the cows be sweet, that the hens would lay eggs, that the ground would be fertile for crops. Um, there were also ones that would work if you were a fisherman. There were Nyssa that would be aboard the ship, and they would help the the fishermen keep the ropes tidy so that they wouldn't uh, get tangled and fall overboard. They would help to keep the nets um, tidy as well. And these beings were collaborators in helping to keep the land and the animals fertile. That um, tradition in in contemporary times has um, devolved in in some ways a little bit in that they um, celebrate them around holiday time. They're the ones that bring gifts. But that the experience of my grandmother's time was they were vital and you had to take care of them in order to make sure that the animals that you had and the uh, birds that you kept, the chickens, whatever it was, and the crops would be hardy, that they would be strong, they would be healthy. And so then uh, as as a young person, I did an awful lot of reading. I was one of those geeky little kids. And I read all the um, northern stories that I could find since that was my ancestry. That was my entrance to it. And then I read everybody else's mythology. And as an adult, what I realized is in many ways, the folktales and mythologies that have grown up, particularly that folktale quality, I don't mean the kind of... um, mythologies having to do with deities so much as the folk tales from around the world hold parcels of truth. They are the product of oral cultures and oral cultures actually have the capacity to transmit wisdom remarkably accurately over generation upon generation. I'll give you two examples. One is that um, on the island of Flores in Indonesia, the people there would talk about the little brown people that lived over there. And people thought it was a myth because these brown people didn't seem to exist. But when they started to do excavations and paleontologists came, they found fossils of people who lived over there who were these little people, which are referred to as, in quotes, the hobbits. They are Homo florensiensis. They are a subspecies of Homo sapien that... Um, uh, mammals tend to get smaller if they're on an isolated island where um, reptiles get larger. So these humans became much smaller and they lived, as the contemporary people thought, over there where they found the fossils. And that story had to be at least 12,000 years old because that's when the fossils are from. They're 12,000 year old fossils. The Australian Aboriginal people have similar stories, their song lines, their dreamtime stories, allowed them to transverse the entire continent. Aboriginal people were isolated on a continent uh, once the sea levels rose, and they were spread around um, the edges primarily of the continent, although there were some, some people you know, more toward the center. And in order to prevent inbreeding, they would routinely travel to another group to find partners. In order to travel across a continent, uh, 
You have to have some way to do that. And so their song lines are so accurate, they could pinpoint where they could find shelter, where they could find water, and guide them to where they were going through the center of Australia, which at that point was an uninhabited desert primarily. So you think about the power of a story, a story being told so accurately. And there's a there's a contemporary version in the Ray Bradbury story, um, uh, the book Fahrenheit 451, where books are banned. And so people choose to become a book. They memorize a book so that they repeat it over and over and over again in, in an intact way. And they actually become the book. So the book is never lost. And so basically what you're doing here for me and hopefully for our audience is reframing fairy tales from something that's imaginative and just to entertain children into actually shamanic stories that hold truth. Is that accurate? That is. And of course, some of the stories were written down after uh, the Christianization of places. And so they have... Um, a different spin. So the wise woman of the woods becomes the witch. And, the, you know, those kind of um, overlays of um, Christian thinking have soured uh, some of the stories, particularly in, uh, from European traditions. But if you, I, I'm of the belief that if we gathered all those stories, all those folk tales from around the planet, they would, ha they would provide for us a template for living in harmony because they're filled with wisdom written and uh, written down if they are written down but transmitted orally for millennia in the effort to to preserve wisdom it wasn't just this is a great story to tell the kids you wouldn't tell that kind of a story for millennia this is a story that is vital to the survival and thriving of a, of a group of people. So that is a prize worth preserving. And if you think about all the different places that we have settled on this globe and preserved these parcels of wisdom, imagine if we brought all of that together and began to look at that, that body of information that our deep ancestors preserved for us. I mean, those stories are kind of like you put a message in a bottle and throw it into the ocean of time. Absolutely. And so what? let's take this back to the, uh, the hidden folk. What traditions recognize the hidden folk and how do they play in here with these stories and fairy tales? Uh, these beings are, again, ones that stand between the human world and nature. So they may be... Um, uh, thought of as um, some people think of them as uh, there's a word for this and I've escaped the word it's sort of a um, less than a deity but still a sacred being there's a word for that which has escaped me and uh, others think of them as kind of nature personified you know we're wired for uh, interacting with beings that are bilaterally symmetrical, two eyes, two ears, and a mouth. And so these beings take those kinds of shapes to speak for that which we might have a difficult time speaking with any other way. It's difficult for human beings in general to think that they can speak to a tree because they don't see a mouth, they don't see ears, they don't see eyes. So these beings would be those intermediaries that not only 
support us to be able to communicate with nature, they actually support the health and well-being of nature. So, so are they kind of like a, um, a metaphor that paints a picture in the imagination to translate the frequency of the unified spirit that we're dancing with between us and a tree? I, th I think of them actually as uh, another spirit to work with. So in the Norse tradition, which is the one that I was raised in, there are what they call the landvater, the, the land wardens. And they are maybe the spirit of a cups of tree on the on uh, trees on the on a knoll, or the spirit of a small pond. It would be this guardian spirit of that place. So you'd have the spirit of the water itself, and then you'd have this guardian spirit. And these guardian these nature guardians are part of what helps to keep that space enlivened. They support the other, all the different species in that area to stay enlivened as a group. And I, I've learned this from experience in bringing groups of people to work over a period of years on a piece of land that was really dispirited from overuse. And the more they were out there making offerings, the more they were out there doing um, their gratitude in whatever form they did their gratitude, interacting with the spirits through journeys, this, the, the land became much more rich and full. Many more instances of seeing game animals, many more birds coming into a place. So They're, they help us focus our intent to bring back the give and take balance? Partially that and partially they are like... Um, oh, they're, they're bridges for us. It's Again, it's difficult for us to interact with, for most people who maybe don't know how to journey, to, to go to the lake and actually commune with the spirit of the lake. I was going to say, how, how do you see these critters, okay? <laughs> you know, well, you go out there and suddenly see Tinkerbell. How, how does that work? Well, I perceive them as having um, what I call a hybridized form. And this is true of most of these kind of spirits. If you think about um, the green man is a great example where they have leaves where there should be hair on their face. Or green women who have a cascade of hair, uh, of uh, leaves on their head rather than hair. It's a hybrid between a plant and a human. And they help us to build that bridge. The ones in the Norse are uh, similar to that. They have some qualities of the area that they care for. So if you think of the shoro, which are the, the mothers of fresh water, the shoro would have this perhaps iridescent kind of quality the way that water does. They would have a fluid quality the way that water does. And you could interact with the shoro around what can I do for this lake to help to keep it well and happy. How do I nurture the spirit of this lake so that all the beings that interact with this water are going to be um, able to survive, sustain themselves, the fish, the humans, everything? So you have this intermediary who functions as, um, oh, kind of like the teacher in the class. You know, you have a room full of kids and the teacher helps them to work together, helps them to do all that they need to do. And when we interact with the teacher, that's 
they become this intermediary between us and their class of students, right? But my question remains the same. Do you go sit on the shore and you might be waiting a long time to see Tinkerbell? <laughs> How do you call them forth? How do you recognize them when they're there? Do you see them with your eyes? Do you hear them with your ears? How do you experience these beings? I experience them with my inner sight, my inner ears, my, when I'm in that expanded state of awareness, I can perceive them. I'm actually right. a very visual journeyer, so I can actually see them in my journey with my eyes closed. Well, we'll have to pick up on how we get into that journey again and how we see these critters and how we in, interpret their information on the other side of yet a commercial break. Evelyn and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion. Don't go away. This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.exzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or guest that you think would be of interest, email us, info at missionevolution.org. I'm sure we'll all enjoy them. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiecka, my school, and the other evolutionary tools we offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. This hour, speaking of gifted people of service to the world, we're sharing thoughts with Evelyn C. Reisdyke. Her website, spiritpassages.com. Evelyn, before we get too much further um, with all this fascinating um, spiritual information and uh, journey journey talk, um, I understand that you have a gift for our listeners. Would you tell us what we put you have and how they can find it? Yes, I, I would like to offer them a sample of the newsletter I call the shaman's bag it's filled with shamanic wisdom tips and tricks and they can get that at www.spiritpassagesacademy.com forward slash gift I'll say that again www.spiritpassagesacademy.com forward slash gift well, thank you so much for offering that. And we, we were we were starting to get into, okay, so these wonderful spirits that are this bridge between uh, spirit and the mundane, if you will, um, that can help us to find balance and restore balance and maintain balance between ourselves and all that is. How do we see them? How do we contact them? For someone who doesn't know how to journey, they may know how to meditate or prayer, uh, use prayer, my recommendation is, first of all, Go outside. <laughs> Spend time in nature. Go out on your own land. If, if you're in a city, go into a park. Leave your electronic devices at home or shut them off so that you can actually be fully present in nature. And then I would ask them in some way to fill up with the feelings of gratitude. They can do that by remembering something from their past that has them feeling grateful. It can be something small, like how great it is if you get into the shower after gardening on a hot day. I know you're having hot weather where you are. And to just feel that that just glorious feeling when you get into a shower. 
and fill with gratitude out in nature. Gratitude puts us into balance and harmony on a physiological level. And it's something that radiates, all of our feelings radiate out, radiate out from us. And nature responds to that. Most of the time, nature experiences us as completely indifferent, moving through as if nature were background. And when we embed ourselves back into nature by feeling gratitude, by spending time in it, nature begins to reveal itself to us. And in nature revealing itself to us, we can be able to step into relationship with whatever it is we notice. If we have a crow that loves to call from the rooftop near us, then we start to observe that crow. Pay attention. What are its habits? Do I want to bring a little bit of birdseed to leave for those critters? And you, you step into relationship how it presents itself. Because every relationship we step into leads us to another one. It's the same way in the human world. And that act of stepping into connection with nature brings with it the gifts. They may start very small, but once you get on, as you say, once you get on that horse, it begins to really run. And you start to notice more and more of the subtlety and the magic that is around you all the time. So um, what comes to mind here is if we take time doing that, take time going out in nature, take time experiencing gratitude, breathing in and exhaling as a, as a part of the equation. In other words, the trees exhale what we breathe, we exhale what they breathe, and start to really immerse yourself in that interconnectedness. What happens to us physically? Does it start to change us? It absolutely changes us. When we're feeling gratitude in particular, it actually relaxes the confirmation of the DNA in every one of our cells. So we know on a gross... Say that again? (laughs) (laughs) This is cool stuff. So uh, on the gross physiological level, it changes the hormone bath that we're in. The hormone of well-being goes up when we're feeling gratitude and the cortisol and adrenaline that is pumping through our body go down. Ooh, has there been studies that prove this? Absolutely. Dozens and dozens and dozens of them. On a, on a uh, molecular level, the epigenetic field is uh, what influences our, the way our genes express themselves. The epigenetic field is what we eat, the toxins we're exposed to, but it's also the actual shape of the DNA molecule. DNA molecules can twist tighter onto themselves based on the stress reaction that we have when we're angry or afraid. And that causes the DNA to not express itself appropriately. So uh, DNA is responsible for cellular, cellular regulation and repair. And when it's in that state, it doesn't do its job as well. This is, the, I think, the foundation for stress-related illness. When we are in gratitude, that molecule actually relaxes into its perfect conformation. The, act, the shape in which that molecule is folded into the best shape for it doing its job. And so when we intentionally feel gratitude, we are stepping into a place where we are much more in balance and harmony inside, and we are radiating out that feeling of gratitude and and the equivalent feelings that are going on in our body. This harmony, this balance is radiating out of us in all directions. 
um, it's, it's as if those feelings really become prayers. We don't need words. The feelings themselves provide the gifts. And nature takes notice because suddenly we go back online. We're not just these ghosts that are walking through the landscape pretending that the trees and the shrubbery and the animals are background. We are now awake to the rest of nature. And when we are awake in that way, we're suddenly, oh, look, there's a light on over there. They go, oh, someone to play with. Someone who who we see, we can we can spend time with. Oh, so this, you're telling me <laughs> that right. they aren't they aren't the hidden folk. We are. You know, in some ways, that's true. I I refer to them as hidden folk since the, the Norse called them the hidden folk. But in truth, we are hiding in that we've forgotten. We have we've sort of closed in on ourselves and forgotten that we are integrated into nature on a fundamental level. We evolved for this particular planet in the way elements are used on this particular planet, breathing this particular atmosphere, drinking water, being mostly water like our planet. We are not looking at nature outside of ourselves. We are embedded in it, but that's the very thing that we forget because our nervous system tells us it's outside of us. And when we spend time in that place of feeling, sitting with nature and allowing ourselves to step back into that relationship, it changes us on a fundamental level. And I think once we have that experience, we want more of it because we feel good. And when we care for something in that way, we want to take care of it. So tell me, how can what you've been experiencing, I mean, uh, describing, how can that support evolution? How can our relationship with gratitude and using gratitude as a gateway into connecting with all that is and with the, the hidden folk, how can that support evolution? Well, again, until we recognize ourselves as a single species with nearly 8 billion individuals that are only one species of many on this planet, that we have a responsibility because we are intelligent beings. We, we like to think we're a lot more intelligent than we are because we've named ourselves Homo sapiens sapien, wise, wise man. We, we have this responsibility with the intellect that we have to step into that sense of our own personal responsibility. And responsibility sounds like a heavy word, but when it's clothed in the gratitude and the, and the experience of being blessed by the life that you have embedded in nature, it changes us to want to work together. You know, we have trouble working with people that look different than us or that worship different than us or have a different expression of their sexuality than, than us. And we need to change that. And gratitude is a great doorway. It's, be, it's a beautiful thing. And it's been spoken of by by uh, all different cultures, hasn't it? And all, all your shamanic cultures speak of the, the power and the necessity and of gratitude and, and the tradition of prayer. It's, it's just amazing how it's all coming back together at this time, isn't it? Well, I think because we need it. <laughs> yeah, don't we ever. Evelyn, what is your mission? My mission is to, to have people understand that they are extraordinarily precious 
that the life that they have here is an extraordinary gift and it's so brief. Even if we live to be 100, you will only be here for a brief period of time in the form that you have. And how marvelous it would be to do even a small part in making this world a better place. Mm-hmm. Not not just for yourself or for your own children, but for all beings. That is the key, isn't it? Is finding that unity again. Absolutely. It, it occurs to me again as we've been talking, and I started the conversation with questions as to you know appropriation. It sounds like that each of us as individuals can use these skills you've been talking about to create living ceremony based on the principles of nature versus ones from our uh, indigenous brothers and sisters. Would you briefly speak to that? You are absolutely correct. And I carry pocketfuls of bird seed and I have uh, cornmeal or flower pe- dried flower petals and I leave them as a concrete expression of my gratitude. My feelings are the first, the first part of the prayer. My feelings are important. But then I also leave something tangible because in that action of leaving something tangible, you are teaching your subconscious that even though I can't see those things I'm grateful for, all of them, they're real. And our subconscious is always listening. So when we ex- we engage in a ceremony like that, we are, yes, leaving that offering as part of our, f- our feeling prayers, but we're also teaching that part of us that's always paying attention that they're real, that I'm now in relationship with something that eats, and I'm giving it a gift in the same way that I like to bring a gift to those that I love. And it changes us on a fundamental level when we do that. So we can create our own ceremonies, maybe research our our history to find out what uh, our ancestors' traditions were, or just in the moment by how we interact with nature. Absolutely. that A pure, fresh ceremony is a wonderful thing, allowing the heart to just pour forth that gratitude so that maybe you leave a bit of your hair in the spring for the birds to wind into their nests, or maybe you're so full of gratitude that you cry and you allow your tears to fall on the ground. Or maybe you share a bit of your sandwich if you're outside at lunchtime. You're saying, thank you for this experience. Thank Mm. you for helping me to remember that I'm not alone. That is the key. You know, unfortunately, Evelyn, (laughs) it's been wonderful spending time with you, and we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, I had a wonderful time, and thank you to all of those who choose to listen. Our guest this hour has been Evelyn C. Reisdyke, shamanic practitioner and the author of The Norris Shaman and Spirit Walking, a course in shamanic power and shamanic creativity. Her website, spiritpassages.com. Remember, our entire information-packed past episode collection is available for listen or download free of charge. Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with Wilda Wiecka coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. Join us next time as this mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our evolving world. <laughs>